Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone and welcome to Pixels, a podcast for the discerning gamer. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pixels, a show where we talk about games. Look at that. It's an amazing time to be talking about the gaming industry, and we have Xbox and Nintendo uh, sitting in a tree. And uh, how does that go? K-I-S-S-I-N-G, basically, is the rumors we're hearing. We have uh, Anthem that is out for real this time, and uh, we are going to be giving you a few impressions. Uh, a Pokemon, new Pokemon title, at last... I'm not a Pokemon guy, but surely all of you are, and a bunch of other things. My name is Patrick Beja, and I'm very glad to be welcoming to the show Kotaku's own Jason Trier. How are you doing, Hello, sir? hello, 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 Patrick. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for waking up early, or although you did tell me you always wake up early, so I feel a little bit less <laughs> special than I did a few minutes ago. <laughs> I do, and I also I, I enjoy. Uh, I have a special connection to the French gaming world because last year, um, I think it was April or so, I actually flew out to Paris and did a bunch of interviews with French press for the French release of my book, Blood Sword and Pixels, and uh, it was one of the wildest experiences that I've ever had because I was just sitting in a room and journalists were coming in and interviewing me one after another one after another it felt like i was a developer at e3 so it was like my experience getting the opposite side of what i do uh every year at e3 so that was pretty cool and uh, a lot of super nice journalists uh it was great to meet uh all those folks and i also while i was there my wife and i took a stroll down um i forget what it's called that quarter of paris that like street in paris where there are just tons of video game stores you know what i'm talking about uh, yeah, it's well, like one oh, after yeah, yeah, yeah. at uh, near République. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that was really cool. Just tons of like great collections and uh, old school games. So yeah, I so love many uh, retro Paris stores. is a great city. Yeah. And, and I it's, love the, it seems like France has an incredible gaming community. We really do. You know, it's very strange. I think it came with uh, a movement I was kind of part of in my uh, forgotten youth, which was the, the I sometimes talk about it on the show. It's uh, the love of Japan that was born out of some uh, morning cartoons uh, that were mm -hmm. imported from Japan that were not necessarily appropriate for the super young uh, people. It was those programs were aimed at. So they kind of carved them up and censored them and it made no sense, but we loved them anyway. <laughs> and it kind uh -huh. of awakened a very special relationship France has with Japan and through that of course manga and anime and yes. video games um, yes. and, I, and I wonder did you do interview rounds like these in other countries or just Paris no it was just France so yeah, Mana Bucks is the publisher yeah. 
yeah, well, Modern Books is a publisher. They're great, uh, great folks over there. Um, and they uh, flew me out there and set up this press gauntlet in, in their uh, in their offices. And journalists just came by and I spoke to them. And we also went on a radio show. So we went to some radio office there. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Obviously, it was all translated. So I don't know how it all came <laughs> out. I hope I, I hope I sounded good. I'm sure they, they distorted everything you said. Uh, but, <laughs> no, yeah, we, we really do have a very strong gaming culture in France. I mean, you see it even with one of the biggest publishers in the world. Ubisoft is from France. Uh, most of them are from the U.S. Not all of them, but many of them. And uh, there is this street you're talking about where it's a ton of uh, retro games. And I think... France is one of the few countries that actually imports a little bit less now that they are doing official uh, imports and global release timeframes. But we used to import games in Japanese and find ways of playing them, chip our consoles. And like we would play the games without understanding a word of Japanese. And that's <laughs> actually what led me to study Japanese and go to live in mm-hmm, Japan. Mm-hmm. There's very, yes. very strong relationship there. So, uh, Yeah, it's really cool to see. So yeah, Jason, in case you don't know, uh, um, is of course from Kotaku, has published a well-known book, uh, Blood, Sweat and Pixels, where you uh, covered the uh, grueling uh, actual work that goes into making video games. Um, (laughs) And uh, you are, I think... I don't want to, you know, throw you too many flowers, but I think you might be the at, at the time at right now you're the most connected person uh, in the gaming industry <laughs> as a journalist. Definitely it seems that half the scoops or leaks that uh, come out in this world uh, have some t- somehow the Jason Schreier name attached to it. So, I don't know how t- you do it, but thank you for keeping us informed. I mean, thank you to the people who talk to me and share mm-hmm. their stories with me and, and trust me enough that they'll, they'll, they'll chat with me and tell me about things that they think the public should know about. Um, I, I, I'm very grateful to all of the, the sources that I work with. Actually, without revealing anything you can't reveal, I'm curious, sure. how does that even work? Like you, you got a, maybe one story out initially and then people started knowing your name. And of course, you've been doing this for a while. So you have contacts as every journalist does with uh, a bunch of, of insiders in the industry. But people figured, oh, OK, you know, Jason is the guy I go to if I want to have something known or I know I can trust him because he doesn't, you know, mess around with his sources. How does it work that you build this uh catalog or or portfolio i guess (laughs) yeah i don't really know i I think you just answered it i mean Mm. i I try to to make myself pretty available and accessible and i try to chat with people and um meet new people i mean i'm very just curious naturally as a a, which is part of why i became a journalist yeah it's a good quality for a journalist Yeah, I like talking when I talk to people, I just like asking them lots of questions about their own lives and worlds and try to understand them. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly am grateful to those people who, who have trusted me over the years. And I hope that I repaid their trust with, uh, with worthy storytelling. Um but yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, that you basically just answered. I mean, mm-hmm. I think at this point when I'm covering something, people, I try to make it clear that I'm when I'm looking for people to talk to, when I'm looking for a story or working on a story. And um, sometimes what happens is if I'll be covering something hard, then it'll lead to other people reaching out and saying, hey, I, I work for Rockstar, too, and I want to tell you about my story. And mm-hmm. um, that can be very helpful when it comes to making sure that I have as thorough a picture um, as possible. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot of uh, just curiosity and persistence and stubbornness and and um, willingness to uh, piss people off. Sometimes <laughs> I think is an important an important part of this right. whole thing because if you're if you're not pissing people off, then you're probably not doing uh, much important reporting because important reporting I is suppose, always going to yeah. piss somebody off. And I guess um, you're 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 you have to be rigorous as well. Of course, I mean it goes without saying, but I'm guessing that you get a lot of people contacting you with completely, you know, information that could be true but you don't know who they are and you get like mm-hmm. tips that don't make sense or that sometimes do but you can't corroborate so you won't uh, uh go ahead with them or stuff like that. It yeah, it can be tricky. Difficult. I mean, sometimes we've gotten scoops that are like uh, turned out to be true, but we had to sit on them because we couldn't confirm them mm. um because we couldn't be 100% sure and I would always rather uh lose a scoop and sit on sit on a piece of news and and just wait than uh have a chance of getting something wrong. Like I never want to be wrong. That's something that I kind of pride myself in is making sure that if I report something it's going to be true. And if it's not true, then I try to be as transparent as possible about why it wasn't true. Um, but in general, I, I just would rather sit on something uh, that's uncorroborated than just run with it and potentially get something wrong. Look at that quality journalism. And people say <laughs> it doesn't exist. Well, those people are wrong, I say. Um, I mean, I, I joke, but there's so much about... I don't even want to go there. Let's not. But... Um, that's how you do it. And I think there are a lot of people who are doing it well. And you're, you know, one represented of that uh, uh, quality journalism in, in everything, but in gaming in particular. And I'm very glad that we have you in this industry. So I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, and so talking about crazy rumors, uh, we have one <laughs> that has been uh, corroborated, at least in part, by several uh, journalists that are serious that I do trust. Uh, one of them being, uh, turns out, a French journalist who's a friend of my French uh, gaming show about uh, Microsoft, Xbox and uh, Nintendo getting together on one of the craziest industry-changing ideas that I have heard in a long time. I think the last time something as momentous was happening was when Sony actually entered the fray and kind of changed what gaming was, except we didn't really know how big it was until they succeeded. It was a risky move for Sony. In this case, uh, I'm catching up people in case they don't know. Uh, The rumors we're hearing um, are that Microsoft is going to be bringing games to many different platforms. We've heard about the Xbox Live uh, social layer, so your achievements, your friends list, being available on different platforms, mobile and the Switch, I think it was a couple or three weeks ago, Uh, that's pretty much confirmed. I think it's part of the GDC panel. We know it's going to be happening. But the latest rumors go much deeper than that. Uh, Microsoft is going to be bringing games to as we said, different platforms, games and services. So uh, those platforms would include the Switch. The most believable part of that uh, uh, rumor package is a few games will be coming to the Switch. Uh, Games that are appropriate to the platform, things like Cuphead, Ori in the Blind Forest, stuff like that. Microsoft, having followed that trend in the tech world, wanting to be the infrastructure and not necessarily the one selling you 150 uh, 
$1,000 copy of Windows every few years. They want to be the infrastructure. It would make sense that they just want to be everywhere in the gaming space as well. But the, the craziest part of the rumor is that it would also include bigger franchises. We don't know exactly which. Could probably be uh, um, Forza, Gears of War, Halo, that come to the Switch and... That would seem difficult unless you also accept the other part of the rumor, which is Game Pass would come to those services probably through the xCloud streaming service. So what would happen is that they would publish games on different platforms and they would, they would edit the, the xCloud streaming service on pretty much every platform they can, including the Nintendo Switch. And through the streaming service, of course, you would port any game you want, and you could offer the Game Pass service for everyone. You could, uh, essentially what's happening is that Microsoft is, is seems to be, if this is true, and it, I tend to believe it because it makes sense from a lot of different angles, uh, uh, seems to be thinking about uh, the evolution of console manufacturing as not manufacturing consoles, but manufacturing a platform. So the console is kind of um, digitized, uh, dematerialized, and becomes a platform that is available everywhere, and of which the Xbox console itself that Microsoft is still going to be building, we've heard about two models similar to the Xbox One S and Xbox One X, so there would be two initial models of the um, uh, next generation of those consoles. Uh, that would be one expression of the service of the platform that Microsoft is building. And it would be on iOS, on Android, on, on Switch. I'm sure they would want to be on the next PlayStation as well, but Sony is probably not very keen. Um, it's kind of industry shattering because it changes what it means to be kind of a platform um, uh, owner, which until now meant console manufacturer, but now it would mean something different. It would be owning a service kind of like everyone's been making that comparison, but kind of like Netflix or those kinds of services. Uh, Jason, what do you think about this rumor? <laughs> well, it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. Um, the one thing that I know for sure that I can pretty much confirm, um, in case it wasn't obvious already, is that Microsoft under Phil Spencer, Phil Spencer's attitude has always been like, well, we will put our stuff on everything. We don't really care as much about exclusivity as the Xbox era of the past. Um, and you can see that with a lot of the moves they made, including the fact that they just announced that Hellblade, which is now uh, owned by a Microsoft-owned studio, Team Ninja, or is it Ninja? theory i always make I confuse the two i think i made uh, the same mistake on my friend show a few days ago so yes one of those <laughs> um it's uh that's a microsoft owned game now and that's coming to switch and i think that and i have certainly heard the same that uh the likes of ori and the blind forest and uh and other microsoft owned games will be coming to switch i think that's a guarantee um the other stuff i'm a little more skeptical of because the technical uh specifics here aren't there yet right now um you would not be able to put Game Pass on the Switch because you would not be able to download a game like Halo 5 and play it on your Switch. It's just technically, it's it. the Switch is not powerful enough to, I mean, I don't know, specifically Halo 5, but what I mean in general is the high-end games. Like You will not be able to play um, the likes of, I don't know, whatever hot new game is coming, Cyberpunk right, on your Switch. The, the way thing you is, would, it goes through, through XCloud. Right, right, right. Well, so let me, yeah, right? so let me finish. 
so let me finish. So xCloud does not exist yet. xCloud right now is being built, is being designed, is being figured out um, very similarly to other streaming platforms that are have been announced or are going to be announced in the near future. And streaming is very much seen by industry insiders and by the whole, everyone talking about games right now sees streaming as the future because that'll change everything. Once you can play uh, high-end games on any platform without paying for expensive hardware, that changes the equation. Once it's reliable and once there are no more uh, latency issues, that just changes everything. Um, So I think it might actually be a little premature to talk about Game Pass coming to Switch. And I think my, my... kind of educated speculation here is that Microsoft is talking about putting Game Pass on Switch and they want to put Game Pass everywhere, but I don't think that they're like they don't have the infrastructure right now. They need to finish their cloud streaming service first and figure out what that's going to look like and how it'll even work on Switch. Like can the switches uh if you're playing the Switch in handheld mode and you're on Wi Fi, is that really like is your connection really gonna be good enough to be able to stream games <laughs> at a reliable and any sort of reliable clip? Um and I know that Nintendo has been experimenting with cloud streaming in Japan. Um so maybe that'll lead to some interesting stuff there and we'll have to see what microsoft does with this stuff but um one cannot happen without the other You're right. and since xcloud doesn't even exist yet i think that it might be a little premature to be talking about what this all looks like and and whether this is all guaranteed coming um because when it comes to deals between multi-billion dollar corporations i don't <laughs> think anything is guaranteed until until ink is we on paper until it, the announcement yeah. is made Um, So I have no doubt that Microsoft and Nintendo have this love affair and they're just in constant conversations with one another. Um, But I think that if we see Game Pass on on Switch, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. I'm I'm very excited about the possibilities as someone who loves his Switch and would love to play everything on Switch. Um, But I think that first they have to get the working model and start beta testing and and get the infrastructure in place for the cloud streaming aspect of that to actually work. And Mm. if it does, then all bets are off. I mean, I am incredibly excited for that for that feature, um, but it has to. We have to see it first. Yes, I completely agree. This is uh, uh, speculative to an extent. Uh, well, not to an extent. It is definitely speculative. But uh, I also think that Microsoft is. How does the expression go? They're, they're skating to where the puck is going to be, and just as they're mm. developing their next generation of Xbox, you know, the Xbox yes. Two or Xbox Everywhere or whatever, they're <laughs> also developing their streaming service. Uh, which you know, I have a. a, a relationship to streaming services because I've been playing on uh, the Blade service for a while and it's really come a long way and I if I am in Paris which I'm currently not I even play from Finland where I live um, it's playable from Finland to pa- to servers in Paris uh, Blade huh. for those who don't know is a service that um, gives you a PC, a virtual PC in the cloud and streams the video. And so from Finland, it's playable. There's definitely enough lag that it would be bothersome in a a PvP setting for a competitive game or an FPS, but everything else would be playable. And in Paris, I think it's good enough that unless you're incredibly competitive and you care about, you know, uh, uh, 20 milliseconds, it would work for you as well. So I think mm-hmm. technically it's possible. We've all seen, uh, also seen the tests with Google's uh, streaming service, right? The Project Stream, which I think... Yeah, we, and they're going to do their official unveil in a few weeks at GDC, yes. which is very exciting. 
Exactly, and we're even hearing that they're going to have some kind of hardware for the service as well. It might be uh, controllers. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's going to be there. I Mm. I know they're working on some sort of hardware, but I'm not sure if that's going to be at at GDC or not. So I guess the way I'm looking at it is technically, I think it's workable. And not workable, I think it works, plain works. For people who have a good enough connection, yes. And the people who are like us, who are gamers, I think we're going to want the, the the games to run locally. We're going to want mm-hmm. to have the Xbox uh, 2 in our home to run the games locally because we care about these things. But if you don't have a, a, an Xbox and you're, you, you can pay 10 bucks a month to have that service on your Switch. And for Nintendo, it's advantageous because it gives more people to buy the console who then are likely to buy their exclusive games, which they're never going to stop doing. Uh, I think the deal makes too much sense for it to not happen if the streaming service works. And I believe the streaming service is going to work. Now, if it doesn't mm-hmm. work, of course, things are going to be different. But um, yeah, for me, it's... It, and we know that uh, Sony has PlayStation Now, of course, which I think doesn't work as well because Sony isn't into server infrastructure as much as Microsoft is. Um, and also, they don't want to uh, uh, cannibalize their sales of their biggest games by offering this new service, offering them on this new service. So it's older games, it's less interesting, it's back catalog. Uh, But they have to be working on it, I'm guessing, for the next generation, or Mm -hmm. I worry that they will be. Because it's not like Microsoft is not going to have consoles. They are going to have consoles. So it's going to be everything as before, except you can also access them if you don't have a console. So I think it's only, it's win, 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 win for everyone, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think these companies are thinking about this, like, untapped audience of potential gamers who just don't want to spend or can't spend uh, a few hundred dollars, $500, $400, whatever it is on a new gaming console. And they're also thinking about, and this is part of the equation that I think gets under discussed in, in gaming circles, because gamers don't really think about this if they're Western or European or, or American gamers. But the huge market right now that everyone's China looking at are France. in China and India. Um, and India is one that doesn't get talked about a lot, but that's one of the emerging markets that a lot of people are uh, in games are looking at and like looking at these this audience of like potentially uh, voracious gamers who just can't afford or don't have access to consoles and if they could be equipped with uh, with with like a streaming service that allows them to play all these high end games on their phones or whatever else whatever they they have um, I think that could be a game changer for a lot of people mm-hmm. so yeah I mean I th- I think of this as like being able to expand the audience and I don't think it'll be a huge changer like I don't think it'll change that much for um, your average person who listens to a podcast like this and right. is up on the latest gaming hardware and like buys gaming hardware and stuff um, although the idea of the the subscription service part of this and the game what Microsoft is doing with Game Pass even right now is pretty cool and I think will will have some really positive effects mm-hmm. like the idea of of uh, a subscription service to gaming is just something that I think can be really smart um, if Sony is smart they will uh, play on their back catalog and use what they've done with PlayStation now to create something really compelling um, yes. based on their library of already existing classic games but based on what they did with the PlayStation classic which was kind of a joke um i don't have much faith in them to to pull that off 
I think they're they're slow on that front because the PlayStation 4 is so successful, they don't really have any interest in uh, getting on the streaming train because, it, of course, if mm-hmm. they do a subscription service, then they don't sell as many individual games. And currently, they have so many co- install, such a big install base that, uh, you know, they want to sell as many as they, they can. But uh, all mm-hmm. right, so we'll see what happens there. Um, but this is definitely, if it does happen, we'll see, I guess, at E3 because the rumors that... The, is, are that uh, all of this would be announced at E3, at least the streaming uh, part on every platform, maybe the Switch. We, mm-hmm. we don't know what will happen there. Uh, all yeah, right. I'd be I, excited. I mean, I'm excited to see what Microsoft has at E3 this year, especially since yeah. Sony won't be there. So Microsoft has this opportunity to just kind of seize the conversation, dominate the conversation, especially if they work with Nintendo and the two, and everyone's talking about all, all June, everyone's just talking about, oh my God, Microsoft, Nintendo, look at what they're doing <laughs> together. Could be really cool. In a, in a completely PG-13 way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. I do want to talk a little bit about Anthem because uh, I know you uh, are a fan of Destiny. Uh, I can't remember if you played Diablo. Um, yeah. But it, so essentially... I mean, I played... Chances are I've played most games. Most, right, <laughs> yes, right, right, I used to be but a big Diablo 2. You particularly... Uh, I used to do a lot of Mephisto runs in Diablo 2 back in the day. <laughs> and you particularly like uh, Destiny, so do I. Anthem has been out and has been... Uh, I think it's fair to say that most people have been disappointed by the game. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people, uh, some people enjoy it, enjoy it for, for what's good in it. Um, but a lot of people uh, are let down. And uh, I wonder if you can tell us what you think about it and if you, you know, and, and why you think that. I'll, I'll, I also have a few words about that. Yeah, well, so fundamentally, I think the big problem with Anthem is that, so like we knew, and they knew, I mean, the developers of Bioware, they knew like, hey, we're going to have a rocky launch, just like all these other games have, um, because this this development cycle did not go great. Um, we are going to launch with like a, a Metacritic. They thought they were, their Metacritic, a lot of people there thought their Metacritic was going to be in the in the 70s, high 70s, um, and then they would just work from there and, and spend time just like listening to what players wanted changing things getting feedback etc yeah. etc which just, is an, a, just for an, reference nah. just for reference the metacritic score is uh 60 to 65 depending on pc or consoles so yes it's even lower. so yeah. lower than people thought in large mm-hmm. part because uh they made ea made the incredibly stupid decision of doing that one week early access thing and reviewers got the early access version quote unquote aka what the, what was out there um and reviewed a game that like right now is different because now yeah. they have they didn't have the out day one patch and other issues uh yeah. because of that um crazy uh early access through the 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 premium access service which mm-hmm. wasn't considered the release of the game so they didn't have the day one patch that's where you heard about all of those crazy long uh, load times they're still long but not as long and that didn't help but. exactly yes um so yeah so going back to anthem itself as a game um what I so I was there. I played Destiny from day one. Um, I think the day before day one is when we first got access to it. But I've been playing Destiny since the very beginning, uh, just nonstop Destiny. And one of the things about Destiny's launch is that even though it was kind of garbage and there were so many issues with the game and it was so broken in so many different ways, fundamentally and design wise, and the loot was broken and the progression system and everything about the game was just busted, except for one thing, and that is the way that it felt to shoot aliens was just unbeatable like no matter what 
I always wanted to play more Destiny because playing itself was just so much fun that I could look past all of the problems. What I found with Anthem is that it doesn't have anything like that. Um, it doesn't have anything new. It doesn't have anything special. It doesn't have anything that makes me want to keep playing. And since this was a Bioware game, I was really hoping that was going to be some sort of story aspect of it. Um, maybe you play with your friends in some way, um, some sort of collaborative storytelling, D&D style, or some other sort of mechanic that like made it uh, really interesting as a game, even though it might have had, it might have launched with other flaws, that it would still have that fundamental solid gameplay that made me want to keep playing. Um, but it just doesn't have that. The flying is okay, it's fun and all. Um, the shooting is just fine, doesn't compare to other games in this in this genre. Um, and it just kind of feels like, a, like mediocre in a way mm. that makes me really unhappy because I, I was really hoping and really wanted more from a game like this. And so for me, I got up to the point, I don't know how much you've played, but I, there's a point like a, about a third or halfway through the game where you get this quest to go around and yeah. do unlock <laughs> the these tombs. Quest, yeah. Yeah. So I got to that quest and I literally just screamed nope at my screen and <laughs> turned it off and like go went back to something else. Went back to Bloodborne at the time. Um, so yeah, I I have just not like found any reason to keep playing and I'll give it another chance because I just love playing different video games and checking out what what they do well and whatnot um so like in a few months if people are like oh you should check out anthem they've done these things differently i will certainly check it out but i'm worried that the fundamental gameplay loop like what game designers call the 30 second loop um which is just the core 30 seconds that you're spending with the game that that's just not there and if that's not there then i don't know if they have anything that's really salvageable and like can really sustain this thing long term and i I don't know yeah no, I, yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. It's not that the game is bad. The flying, I, I would be a little bit more generous on the flying. I think the flying is mm-hmm. really fun. The, fu- the, the flying yeah. is satisfying and, you know... Until getting... you overheat and then you <laughs> crash. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, but the shooting is average, as you said. I think the, the worst word in the English language is fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. not, you know, but, but that's what it is. The shooting is fine. Um, but there are baffling game design decisions uh everyone's been talking about the loading screens the fact that you can equip anything it's not just that you can't identify the items you've gotten um when you're midway through you can change your equipment so if you don't like a gun you have to go back to the base and go to the forge and that's all loading screens um but even beyond that there's i think that's what i feared when i played the demo you only really have one thing to do. That's going out with three people who you probably don't know and shooting uh, aliens in essentially what is an instance where you are alone with those three, pe- those three people. So it's one type of activity. Destiny, for all of its many faults when it first released uh, six years ago, uh, I think was disappointing because people were expecting a gigantic MMO but it had a lot more going for it. Uh, you know, it, it, it felt Destiny felt like the skeleton of a game that needed meat uh-huh. on its bones. This feels like half a skeleton. You know, Destiny had different environments, different type of activities. You could roam the world and do public things. Here, even when you go in free play, you're still grouped with those three other peoples, which you never see probably if you don't have uh, happen to go where they are. It's... Mm-hmm. 
it, it, and you have like enemies that will one shot you that are snipers at the other side of the map and that are are also uh, uh, meat shields that you you'll shoot them for fifteen minutes and they won't die and there are like three yeah. of them at different ends of the map and and it's so frustrating like this game feels like it was really uh, uh, developed it started the final development probably when Casey Hudson came back I I don't want to say that I mean <laughs> it seems like he came back what two two years ago. Um, and that's when they started working on it. This feels like a game that has been in development for two years. And I can't really fault EA for putting it out. It's difficult because they've been working on it actually since 2012. And at some point you're like, dude, like we, <laughs> there are three studios working on this. We at some point have to put something out. Um, not everyone can afford to say, all right, scrap this hundreds of millions down the, the drain and let's put out something that is better or keep working on it for another two years. I don't know. But it is very surprising that the game is coming out in that state and not just because mm-hmm. of the technical issues because of fundamental game design and architecture st- uh, technical design issues and yeah hmm. yeah and it's tough i i mean i think one of the reasons so uh, yeah i mean as i've reported this game went through a really difficult pre-production period and it was in pre-production for a very long time as people were trying to make decisions and i think that if you ask someone to buy or worked on this game they would say hey look it's really hard to make a game like this like this is a model that is not like an easy like plug and play like uh hey we know exactly what we're doing here so we can just make this in our sleep especially for a company that had never made a game like this before um but that is not really like like from a from a just a regular gamer's perspective well that's an explanation it's not really an excuse yeah you explain and also the thing is yeah that because the thing is even if so all those problems that you mentioned with the loot system and i mean i think a lot of that stuff can be fixed i think they will certainly make it so you can access your inventory from the world and i'm sure that they will change the loot system pretty drastically they've already started making some changes to that but but I don't think it's really like when Destiny launched in 2014, we had not really seen this type of game much before. Now it's five years later and Anthem is expecting people to have the developers of Anthem are hoping that people will have patience and stick with them while they improve things. But it's like if you have all these options today of games like this that you could play, why would you bother? Like, why wouldn't I go back to Destiny 2, which is as good as it's ever been? Like Destiny 2 is an incredible place right now now i was playing a little bit last night uh yesterday and it was super fun um and uh why would you do that why would you or why would you not do that why would you wait for anthem when you could play all this other stuff and why would you like want to be patient when it comes to anthem like there's nothing (laughs) for me at least there was nothing fundamentally that made me feel like okay this this really has the 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 fundamentals of a great game here i just have to wait for it like there was nothing there for me and that to me is really sad Completely agree, uh, especially since, yeah, as you said, Destiny 2 is so good right now. And what they're doing with the uh, next part of their annual pass, I'm even thinking maybe I'll get it. I just don't have time to play anything <laughs> or to play everything. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Luke Smith who, who in that video presentation from the Bungie uh, documentary, mini documentary about the, the season said, we're starting the roadmap 
the roadmap for what a bungee-controlled destiny looks like. Like this little jab at the Activision was really funny. Uh, yeah, but- well, it's very, it's very. There's a lot of truth to that, and if you yeah. kind of read between the lines, I think that's something that's really important about um, Activision-controlled destiny versus bungee-controlled destiny. Is that bungee-controlled destiny is going to look a lot more like a a service game as opposed to a game that has annual releases. Um, and I think we might not start to see the huge difference, like all the huge differences until uh, a little bit later. But I think that a Bungie that is free of Activision's um, pretty restrictive schedule. Um, and if you look at Activision, I mean, they have made no secret about the fact that their model has always been like annual releases. They have always been a company that has found success with the Call of Duties of the world and the annual Guitar Heroes and Skylanders and yeah, that's all the other franchises. They wanted they've... out of, uh, out of Bungie. It wasn't a secret at all, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, and and so annual releases do not really jive with a game like Destiny that needs to be just evolving constantly and not necessarily like working towards these big tentpole releases, but instead getting a drip feed of updates throughout the year, which makes for a lot more interesting stuff. Um, I would rather have a Destiny that is just updated constantly than a Destiny that where I have to wait a few months before any new giant like content uh, uh <laughs> Drop yeah. and then um, I think that that really that that kind of tension between games as a service and annualized releases is really what comes down to the entire Activision Blizzard tension as well. And I think we're going to start to see that more and more as Blizzard has traditionally been a company. And I don't know I don't know how much you can actually talk about this since you have some personal connections, but yeah. but Blizzard is actually a company that's been uh, just traditionally games as a service, and Activision is a company that's been annualized releases. And now as a result of Blizzard not being able to get much out in the past few years um more and more i think we're going to start to see that pressure to just come out with more stuff and we're going to start seeing more games from blizzard and that might be a really good thing um and it also may not i don't know but that tension (laughs) is what's what's important yeah i've been talking about this a little bit uh, or a lot (laughs) because a lot of what i do is centered (laughs) around the history of that well about around (laughs) the games of that company but um Uh I, I, I do think that it's a real problem, and for gamers as well, that Blizzard hasn't been putting out games uh, for like three years now, and a uh, new games. Yeah. And that's a big problem. And I think the reason gamers are actually angry is because Blizzard is Blizzard. They, they take ages to do anything. But as you said, we have so many things to play now. We're, we're not waiting around for like one new character in Overwatch or one new expansion in, in Hearthstone. We want like new stuff because there's Destiny and like even the Division 2 is coming out, which seemed like it would be uh, eaten alive by Anthem. And now all of a sudden plot twist, uh, everyone is saying the Destiny looks really good and Anthem is a bit disappointing. <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping, what I'm hoping... And I've said this before. What I'm hoping is that this is going to be just enough of a kick in the butt for Blizzard to actually adapt their production pipeline uh, and be able Mm -hmm. to put out more stuff while retaining the quality that they're known for. Uh, I'm a little bit worried, but it seems, you know, what they're doing is hiring more devs. And I I mean, things couldn't continue with no games for four years. So they had to do something. I hope it's going to be the the right thing, but I'm worried as well, of course. But um, well, since we're talking about this, um, yeah, I did want to ask you before we move on to Pokemon and happy, uh, happy things and happy animal you capture in tiny Pokeballs. Um, there's a, a, a perfect excuse to be talking about the situation in the industry, uh, in the gaming industry, which I know you're passionate about. Uh, there mm-hmm. was a a um, 
uh, uh, not a study, but uh, a top 100 of the most overpaid CEOs uh, in the -hmm. world. That was done by... uh, as you saw, which is an organization that does stuff, I'll let you go check out their um, uh, 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 mission statement, which is essentially uh, environmental and social corporate responsibility. So that's the kind of thing they would do. Uh, it's uh, uh, They study a company, they look at what they did, what how they treat their employees, etc., Bottom line, um, and it financial data as well, uh, but bottom line, Bobby Kotick in, is um, number 45 in that list of uh, employees, uh, of, I'm sorry, of, of CEOs that are overpaid. I think he is paid <laughs> two, 306 times the average salary of an employee in his company. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. And so, of course, we've talked about this a lot in all of the shows I do about Blizzard and Activision and all of that. Um, and I think the conclusion I came to was if you're, unhappy about the situation then you probably would want either unionization or you know social safety nets or labor laws or something like that but the easiest one to go to is unionization and i know that you are also uh, a a defender of the idea of unionization i was wondering if you could tell us why you think it would be a positive thing and not a negative thing because a lot of people go oh union mafias you know it's going to be an impediment to business, which I think, you know, I can understand the argument, but you think it would be necessary. Why do you think that? Yeah, it's funny. How, um, sorry, as we to, have this. Just to add to the question, how would it improve the gaming industry as a whole? Yeah, well, so as as we have this conversation, like right now, um, as we speak, just last night, our company um, came to a contract with our own uh, union our union like sat down and renegotiated because we had to our co- first contract had expired and we had to re- renegotiate a new one and we got all this stuff and I can't really get into specifics because I don't think it's public yet but we got a lot of stuff that we wanted and just the power of us being together bargaining allowed us to have more leverage than we would otherwise and yeah I think a lot of people think that um Pro-union people like myself are think of unions as like a cure-all, as a panacea, something that'll stop all the games industry's woes. And I think that's absolutely not true. I think that even with even if the games industry was unionized, I think you would have a lot of studio shutdowns still. I think you would have a lot of layoffs still. You would still have that giant wage disparity between Activision's workers and Bobby Kotick. But the biggest difference is with unions workers can have a seat at the table. So in a case like the huge, the mass layoffs that hit Activision and Blizzard earlier this year, um, would a union be able to stop those layoffs? Absolutely not. But a union might ha- might force Activision Blizzard and Bobby Kotick to sit down with someone from the union and say, hey, look, here's what's going to happen. We have to be in communication with you. We have to tell you how this is going to go down. And maybe the union would say, hey, look, we, we understand that your business needs to make these changes but instead of uh, doing layoffs, why don't you do buyouts across the company and make it voluntary for people and see if you can get enough people so that you hit your numbers and that's exactly what happened with my company and it wound up that we didn't actually need to lay people off for the most part um, with some exceptions. Well to but, be fair they, it was, they did do that at Blizzard I don't know about the other yes, uh, but not, companies. But they didn't they weren't really clear about it so they created mm. this program called Career Crossroads and they said hey look if you've been here for a while you're not happy you want to leave here we'll give you severance to leave but it's not like they said hey we're going to be laying people off if this doesn't if we don't get enough and they also restricted it to 
certain departments. It was only, um, I believe, IT and QA and maybe a couple more, but it wasn't all the departments. Um, and it also was only Blizzard. Like it wasn't across the industry, the, the company, Activision Blizzard. Because um, a lot of people at Activision, like it wasn't just Blizzard that was hit hard. It was a lot of people all throughout Activision Studios and Activision's publishing mm. office. Um, so Santa Monica, their main office, and also like Vicarious Visions lost lost a few people and um, other game studios uh, High Moon lost a few people some other and just anything owned by Activision got hit in some way um, so yeah and then a union could also make sure that in a contract it says and everybody has the right to X amount of severance and make sure those standards are very clear so it's not like up to the company involved how much severance they want to give um, and just standardizing things and doing things a lot of things that you don't really think about especially if you are a, uh, a white dude something you might not think about is the fact that women generally like there is a huge salary disparity between men and women and women for various reasons might not have might not be as equipped to make sure that they're being paid fairly without the sort of transparency and even salary floors that a union contract can provide and a union contract you can say everybody who has this title who has the title of designer or as a title of senior producer or whatever it is should be making at least this amount and that would allow people to everybody who who isn't the best negotiator in the world to look at that and say hey I deserve to be paid this this is what the average is this is what my my colleagues are making and I've heard so many horror stories from people who are like um, and women especially who are like man I had no idea that I was being underpaid by like $20,000 until until <laughs> I asked around and it turned out that all these people who were doing the same job were making this much more than me um, and I think there's a lot to get into there when it comes to wage disparity but I and, and yeah, I won't yeah. get into all the details I'm not qualified to talk about this in depth but I know that a union can help ensure that everybody is treated fairly mm. um so yeah, it's, I think there are a lot of benefits that you don't really think about until you start to get yourself educated on how this all works and what a union can do for people. I Yeah, it's really funny because I think in the case of Blizzard specifically, it seems, I don't know for sure, but it seems they treated their uh, employees who, who were laid off pretty well uh, with severance and a bunch of stuff. So it's okay, good for them, but it doesn't mean the whole industry. It's like the industry being not unionized and not having labor laws in the US specifically and not, no social safety nets means that it's chaos that is to the advantage of the company that is doing its job. Of course, the company and the CEOs are supposed to be making as much money as possible for the shareholders. But when there's the chaos, it can be exploited to the detriment of the uh, employees. And that's really strange for me to be looking at because in France we have all of those and yes. things work you know it's not like it's exactly what you, I was I think the the argument I used last episode was you get a seat at the table and that doesn't mm -hmm. mean everything changes but at least you're part of the conversation and in France it works like that you you have uh your union reps or you know uh, company reps uh employee reps are are invited to discuss the thing and there might be a, a pre-announcement and they can offer you an opportunity to leave with these and these conditions and i mean it doesn't change the fact that you sometimes get layoffs but it doesn't destroy your life when it happens or not as much you know so yeah I think, I, I mean, this is this kind of change is going to be slow. And, and what's even more heartbreaking is that the video game industry is still so young in every sense of the word. And young people go in starry-eyed and, and get taken advantage of. And that's mm -hmm. um, not in every company, but I mean, it doesn't fix everything. But I think it balances things out. And, and that's important. So, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Mm. All right. Uh, yeah, we could talk about this for a long time, but thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> other news. The, there was a tiny Nintendo Direct uh, two days ago, and uh, it was seven minutes long, and they announced new Pokemon games. That's kind mm-hmm. of... I still have a hard time wrapping my head around this. It's the big one of the biggest franchises around this way of communicating which has been happening for a few years now it's not like it's new but it still uh, uh shocks my old school communications core person uh nintendo announced pokemon sword and pokemon shield uh for the switch which is coming out this year that was the most unexpected thing we knew a new a full new uh pokemon game was going to be coming out um but it's coming out this year so that's the big game of the year that they were uh counting on to keep selling switches um it's relatively standard people who might be have been expected a significant change for the first home console uh episode in the series well if you don't count Let's go. Um, my piece is pointed. It's still very much a standard Pokemon game, it seems, from the little bit of information we've gathered. Uh, but it's a, a, obviously a big piece of news. Um, I guess, I don't know if you're a Pokemon fan. Uh, are you super excited about this? No, I'm not a Pokemon fan at all, unfortunately. All right, good man. I'm, Me I'm happy for I the never people who are. <laughs> Yeah, the thing that always about I'm a big RPG fan, and the thing that I never liked about Pokemon is that when you go around and you talk to people, the only thing that people talk about is Pokemon. Like it's the <laughs> stupidest dialogue. All they all they talk about is Pokemon. Like there's no interesting personalities or characters or anything like that. All they all they want to talk about is Pokemon. Um, that among other reasons are reasons I can yeah. never really get into Pokemon. Yeah, but so it's uh, it's coming. It's pretty big, um, and that's the yeah. Big I'm happy for for, for all the people who love Pokemon who are going to yeah. get one on the Switch. It's, it's exciting for them, but not my style. I'm more excited for uh, for other other Switch games, Metroid Prime, uh, Mario Maker oh. too. That's oh, okay. I'm Mario Maker about. Two is coming. Uh, Metroid Prime, you're going to be waiting a little bit longer. Oh yeah, I know. Um, I know. I'm okay. To, I'm okay waiting. You that's can fine. wait. I don't uh, mind. So yeah, Pokemon Sword and Shield. Uh, I wonder if it's going to be the one that get me in in the series, but I think it's. <laughs> I feel like people um, who aren't into Pokemon wonder that every single time. Yeah, it's by never, now, never the case. Uh, there's a rumor about an, a VR related uh, uh, accessory for the Switch, which is super weird. But maybe we've seen many sev- uh, uh, different rumors about this over the past few years. Uh, we'll leave mm-hmm. that for another time. Um, Reggie Fiseme is retiring, the president of Nintendo of America, and he is being replaced by Doug Bowser, the VP of Sales and Marketing. And of course, Bowser at the head, at the head of Nintendo is... I mean, we knew that the guy was there for a few years, people who were following the industry. But now that he's going to be president, it's kind of crazy that Bowser is going to be president <laughs> of Nintendo. It's, <laughs> it's all very silly. Um, yeah. Reggie will definitely be missed. He, I, I met him a couple of times. He struck me as a good guy. He struck me as the the rare uh, the rare video game executive who actually plays video games, um, which I always thought was was pretty cool. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that he he kind of transformed that company in a lot of ways and gave them a level of personality that they hadn't had before his his uh, reign started. So yeah, I think that uh, you talk to people at Nintendo and and they have it's a lot a of positive sad, yeah. things to say about him. It seems like it's, he was a he was a pretty good guy. 
so amazing how i mean he's a lovable person uh, persona his persona that we the public persona is so lovable and actually it extends to pretty much everyone at nintendo you know you talk about big companies and the heads of those companies being uh lifeless uh, corporate automatons and in many cases it certainly seems like it uh, at nintendo i don't know how they do it maybe it's the uh weird nature of the nintendo directs and the quirky lovable quirky part of it but reggie fiseme was also in that category of oh you kind of want to hug him and he's big and oafy but nice and, <laughs> i don't know um all right a few announcements and then i actually i don't know if i told you this but i do want to talk about bloodborne for a second uh sure recently took a plunge into that game so i i want to ask you about it but uh, a few yeah, announcements life-changing <laughs> we we've heard that uh the new jedi uh fallen order star wars game is going to be revealed in april at a star wars event uh that's exciting it is respawn of course developing that game for ea and we have a lot of hopes riding on that game um the developers of fury uh if you remember that boss rush game are developing a, a romantic kind of game with very uh striking graphics called haven i'm curious to look at that uh darkest dungeon 2 is coming we have dreams early access starting with only serious creators uh this spring that's an interesting way of of pushing this game they've been very careful in who they give it to first before the release so that it doesn't end up being a festival of i don't know giant penises everywhere because that's what people do when they're not serious creators um you have resident evil games coming to the switch in may three of them uh classic ones samurai showdown is going to be coming out at uh this summer i'm excited about this as a fighting game fan um monster boy is going to have a demo on the switch that's pretty cool because the game is supposed to be great and we can try it out uh I'm doing a quick uh, gauntlet of news. Fortnite has a ping system now. That's, I mean, I am amazed. I keep saying this every show at the uh, uh, ability and agility of Epic with Fortnite. They already have a ping system. Of course, it's not as evolved as the one in Apex Legends, but wow, are these guys good. It's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's what it's nice to to be a technology company, an engine company, and have some of the best engineers in the world working on your right. tools, which allows you to make stuff really fast. I think something that often goes under under discussed in gaming communities is the effect of tools on making games and how good tools just change everything for you if you're a game developer. Yeah, not not to always bring it back to Destiny, but that's kind of of what sunk uh, Destiny 1 and why mm -hmm. they really had to change to 2, to the, a new engine. And I suspect that many of the issues with Anthem uh, actually come down to Frostbite, uh, the engine that EA uses in everything. I don't know that it's the case, so I don't want to be too definitive, but it wouldn't surprise me, let's say. Uh, it, it's an engine that wasn't built for this, so it's difficult to fit the shoe on that foot. That's mm. not a metaphor. For but, sure. <laughs> um, uh, and what else? A uh, couple of other bits that I'm going to set aside because I know you're going to have to uh, leave soon. Um, I did want to ask you about B Bloodborne because uh, I think of the many games that have come out over the past 
five, this generation, one of the games that always comes back in conversations is Bloodborne. Uh, the, the Dark Souls series as a whole, but Bloodborne maybe even more than the others, or at least as much. And a lot of my friends have been singing the praises of that game, telling me how incredible and, as you said, life-changing it is, and encouraging <laughs> me to, to play it. And I have tried, I think I've tried two or three times at least, playing a serious amount of time. I even killed the first boss, uh, Father Gascoigne, Gascoigne, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it never clicked for me. It always felt like difficult and unrewarding and artificially uh, um, uh, being putting stuff in my way that I didn't want to bother with. And I mm -hmm. know that uh, you talked about it on, on your podcast with, with your co-hosts, uh, Kirk especially, who wanted you to play this. Um, And you said that you did try it before and didn't click. And this time, because you had to keep playing because it was the bet, it did end up clicking. Can you please tell, tell me why, how I knew you, you wrote about this? <laughs> and, and tell yeah, me how so I have to approach it to, to also find the joy in Bloodborne. Yes. So, um, yeah, so just a little bit of context. Kirk and I, my, my co-host, my Kotaku Split Screen co-host, Kirk Hamilton, um, he and I made a bet and I lost. And so I had to play the game of his choice and it was Bloodborne. And yeah, so I had played Bloodborne. I also got to about where you were the first time I played it, which was when it came out and I bought it um, and just jumped right in. Um, and I had also just tried over the years to get into Souls games. I played a bunch of the Dark Souls remastered and liked it. Uh, didn't love it, I would say. Um, But, um, I, and I, I do think that like these games, like they don't click for everybody. Like that's perfectly normal if a game isn't clicking for you. And like, sometimes you just don't want to force it. And, and sometimes it just won't ha happen, like, which is fine, which is perfectly normal. But in this case, I think what happened to me was that, yeah, it was part, part, it was mostly in fact being forced to play it, but also sometime around like when you stopped. So after beating Father G and then getting into old Yarnum and then the Cathedral Ward, um, which is another area. Uh, that just ha unlocks right after Father G. Um, I don't know. At some point, I was just like, whoa, I'm really into this. I really want to know more about this game. And I started reading up on the lore and just like figuring out and reading all this fascinating stuff and realizing like all this, all the, all the rhythms of the game and just finding all these different like, like reasons to keep playing. And yeah, I don't know. Something about it just clicked in my brain in a way that it hadn't before. And suddenly I was thinking about it even when I wasn't playing it. Um, and I was just thinking about the way that the, the combat feels and the way that the rhythm of it all works and the challenge of it all and yeah I don't know it's hard to articulate exactly what happened but at some point um, around where you were something in my brain just turned on and like clicked and suddenly I was in love with Bloodborne um, so something about just, just like the feeling of like finding a new area and exploring it and then running into a new boss and knowing you're gonna have to learn all of its patterns and rhythms and yeah it's just really it just really appealed to me in a way that um, I think a lot of other games haven't it just like turned on this part of my brain that was like you have to be paying attention constantly you have to be learning everything you have to just immerse yourself in this game and not pay attention to anything else and just focus like solely on this thing um which just like really like i don't know it really hit the spot for me so it's not like one thing specifically it's just that you ended up liking what the game was <laughs> i'm gonna say inflicting upon you um yeah because I think, it made I think part you of it is a, a that... better a better i'm gonna say hunter because it's in 
Bloodborne, but I, I <laughs> no, was it's say not that I person. liked with the game. So okay, so I think at the beginning of the game, the problem with Bloodborne is that the intro is just not very good. Like it, it kind of throws you oh. into the deep end, and just um, and that's true Soul style quality. It just is like like we don't care about you. Like just figure it out. Um, and I think that can be really unappealing because you don't really know what you're doing at first, and it can be really the first area just kind of sucks. It's like kind of. Um, like uh, uh, dark and confusing and gloomy and full of enemies who will just tear you apart in a second. Um, And then you don't really get to feel what else the game has to offer um, until you've given it a chance and like gotten the hang of all that the rhythms that it has for you. So um, it's not a very welcoming game, but yeah, but once, once it clicks for you and you're just like, Oh man, wow, I am starting to get a feel for this. Then it starts feeling Mm. really, really good. And you start realizing like, it's not about being punishing as much as it is about being, I don't know, teaching you how to be careful and how to be good at a video game and at some point i just like got over this hump and was like whoa like i can be really good at this even though i'm not like an expert gamer by any means it just made me feel like i could be really good and i could be really um just craftful and meticulous and and skilled at a game like this even though i didn't think i could and um yeah it's a combination of everything the setting and the lore and the way that this story is is told is really interesting and basically you have to read about it online if you want to understand the story (laughs) but it's all really intricate and fascinating um and the way that it feels to swing the axe and the sword and and just like getting uh these special visceral attacks on enemies is really satisfying um just exploring a new area and like finding hidden paths and secrets and there's just a lot to love about it it's just this really good package of stuff and yeah i can't get it out of my head i keep thinking about it (laughs) it's it's really funny so i guess the the one thing that is giving me a little bit of hope is that the first the the intro is not the best representation of the game, or maybe it's a little bit too throwing you in the deep end. Well, the problem is the and, intro is it's it's throwing you into things when you don't really know how anything about right. the game or how it works. So it's very easy to get frustrated and be like, "Oh my god, I keep dying and and I can't even get back and get my souls back because I right. keep dying and losing it, and I feel like I'm making no progress." But but once you get past that first boss, and I think you're pretty close to the hump, um, you you can. I mean, maybe it's it's not going to click for everybody. I imagine yeah, yeah, for course, me, at least, it was like getting past that first <laughs> boss, um, being willing to just keep giving it time and like be rec- like recognize that you're going to have to give it a lot of time and spend a lot of time because you're going to die in, in new areas mm. and you're going to have to learn those new areas. But there's something really satisfying about just like memorizing the layout of an area and learning it and just learning how everything works and, and just like challenging yourself to just keep getting better and better. And yeah, I, it's just rewarding in a way that a lot of games haven't been for me even right. other souls games that i've tried um yeah. just haven't haven't felt the same to me um and i think that's just a combination of of all these different factors all right well so it's like buffy you have to get through the first season which is not great exactly and then you discover exactly exactly okay. well i'm a buffy fan so maybe i the, the, the only problem is with a kid i don't really have time anymore and that's what I. that's really... the problem although well, the problem with I, this I... game is that if you have a kid you can't pause at all so uh-huh. that makes it tricky although i guess you well, can you can like like put your ps4 in rest mode to kind of <laughs> cheat pause but um but you can't really pause possible. so that makes I, it tricky i say that and i play overwatch all the time so but overwatch is uh, like okay chunks Fair of enough. 15 minutes so all right well thank you very much for uh that 
Bloodborne report. Maybe I will try it again. Uh, it's just I I, get, <laughs> I have this feeling, as I do with some games, that I'm I'm missing something, and it's frustrating. So we'll see. Yeah, well, thank you, you. <laughs> thank you very much for being on the show, Jason. Uh, you mentioned your book, and uh, we mentioned the podcast. What would you tell people where they can find more of you? I'll include the link to your Twitter account in the show notes. But uh, what? Yeah, can they I mean the podcast is is that's where you can hear me talking the most um and uh yeah obviously i'm on kotaku.com and so check us out and yeah that's it uh the podcast is called split screen and what i really like about it is that we can hear all of you maddie kirk and you smiling as you're doing it like it, it oozes <laughs> joy it's really wonderful so thank you, for that. <laughs> thank you. i appreciate that <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, for me, it's Patrick Beja, not Patrick, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find this show at frenchspin.com. And if you want to comment on this episode, feel free to do it there. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Talk to you then. Bye.